it's an honor to have you here today. Today we're going to talk about the rise of the papacy, fancy word for Pope. So here is my first polling question. How many of you either are now or have at some time in the past been or have a very close family member who is Roman Catholic? Look around you. Okay, that's pretty cool. Um, these lessons that we write, or I write, uh, get emailed out to ultimately, because of different chains, I can trace out about 150 people who get these things each week. And a number of them, I'd say at least 30 to 40% are Roman Catholic. So it was so interesting for me to put this lesson together on the rise of the, the Pope uh, as a position within the church and to get the feedback from people, some of whom are Catholic, some of whom are Protestant. And, and my concern was that rocks might be thrown from both directions, uh, but it turns out the Catholics, by and large, uh, uh, said that's pretty fair treatment of, of how we approach this. And so thank you as a Protestant for doing it. And then the Protestants were like, yeah, thank you for finally saying what needs to be said about the, the Pope, which means either you only read the stuff you like and you ignore the rest of it, or perhaps there's a decent job at trying to, to give a truly intellectually honest assessment of how we got to where we are today, by and large, uh, uh, as far as the Pope and, and that aspect of Roman Catholicism. So I'd like to go through it. The lesson's a lot more thorough than I have time to talk to you about. So please don't hesitate if you're interested to take it home and read it as opposed to just dumping it in the trash, which you're also welcome to do, though we do urge recycling. Now, last summer was a really cool summer for me and, and, and Becky. Last summer was neat because of, of a number of different things, but two things that are relevant to this class. First of all, uh, my book was published by InterVarsity Press, Christianity on Trial. And I have, I've got legal publications and, and legal books and chapters and books, but I had not been published before like this in, in a Christian publication. So it was very exciting and it got published right at the end of May or or early June, and then in conjunction with that, last summer, Becky and I were due to get a papal audience, June the 20th. We were set to get to uh, meet the Pope, and I got kind of buzzed because I kind of thought, hey, maybe I can get my book into his hands, and then though he would probably not have any use for it at all, I could at least talk about giving the Pope my book and I might increase sales or something, you know? You never, you never know. So June the 20th, Becky and I were among a group of people who were in Rome for a, a legal seminar on religious persecution. And the Pope was going to give a papal audience to the, the folks who were there and the sponsors of, of that uh, and speakers of that seminar. And so we got invited. We were supposed to meet in that uh, plaza outside the, 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 
well, inside the Vatican City, but, but it's an outside plaza. You meet under the porch. And then once we got there, we followed this fellow who looked like he knew what he was doing. We went through these metal detectors and we found one of the, the Swiss guards wearing the Dr. Zeus costume and our designed uniform. And, uh, um, uh, they, by the way, they do not look as friendly as they do in the Dr. Zeus books. They look really like they could take you down. These guys are serious and I would not make light of their clothing in their face. And, and actually I do have a pair of socks that look very much like that and, and I'm fond of them. So, uh, um, so they escort us through all of these different halls. And as we went through the halls, it was really cool because they have these incredible paintings on the ceilings and everywhere. And I'm stopping taking pictures and Becky's hustling me along for fear that I'm going to try to paint that in the chapel or get it repainted or something. She's like, we have enough, Mark. Don't do that. Don't do that. And, and I'm just saying, man, look at this. This would be so cool. We could paint this in the bathroom and, and uh, all of this mess. And she's like, Mark, please come on. And so I'm taking those pictures. We finally get into the room where we're going to have the papal audience. And when we get into the room, it is an incredibly ornate room. And this is just a picture, one of the pictures of the ceiling in the room. If you're looking at the drapes, I mean the, the fabric on the walls below the pictures, they have the crest and seal of the Pope, which are the keys of Peter and, and all of this stuff. And, and, uh, uh, uh that's the chair where he was going to be sitting and, 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 uh, uh it had like the two little places for bishops on each side. And that's the, the seal of the Pope right above him on the wall. And the, you can't see very well the painting on top. But the painting right above it, I tried to get a better picture of that painting. The painting right above it, I didn't get the letters very well because my thought was, um, I'll find it on the Internet if I ever need a good picture. Well, I can't find it on the Internet. So if any of you have ever gotten a better picture of that, I'd like it. But um, I'm the nerd who's in there trying to figure out while we wait for the Pope. I'm trying to figure out all of the writing and trying to reread the Latin. So this was painted during one of the Popes in the 1600s. And I'm elbowing Becky. And I said, hey, see that right there? And she says, yeah. I said, that says Triclinium Vaticanum. You got any clue what it means? And and she and I are like children in a candy shop because we're the two Protestants amidst a sea of Roman Catholics. And they're all talking about, do we kiss the ring? Do we not kiss the ring? You know, and they're all into their, their this whole thing from their perspective. We're into it from ours, which is just kind of really enjoying it and having a good time. But we see the Pope a little differently than our Catholic friends do. So Becky says, yeah, yeah, yeah. She says, obviously I got Vaticanum, but what's triclinium? I said, that's Latin for dining room. So technically, we're kind of like meeting the Pope in his dining room. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So he comes in and he gives his speech and there are some presentations made and things of that nature. And then a, a certain set of us get to get in line to go up and meet him. Well, Becky's going to go in front of me, and Becky is is fluent in, in Spanish, lived in Argentina for a year, and can speak Spanish with Argentinian accents and idioms and things like that. She's probably 
getting ready to throw a tomato at me and saying that I've got it all wrong. This is the way reality exists in my brain, okay? Uh, Recognizing I'm good ordering tamales at a Mexican restaurant, and that's the limit of my Spanish. So to me, you know, my wife, so I said to Becky, I said, look, Argentinian Spanish is the Pope's first language. So you should really talk to him in Argentinian Spanish. We shouldn't make him use English, which is like his 90th language, though he's pretty good with it. You know, my Latin is pathetic. I'd have no shot at that, so he can probably do Latin, even though it's a dead language. But And and neither one of us have enough Italian to say goodbye. Um, So so she's going to go first in in front of me, and I said, so talk to him and tell him in uh, Argentinian, not just that we're honored to get to meet him, but that I want to give him a copy of my book. So I don't look like an idiot. So she says, okay, I will. So she goes in front of him. And and I couldn't take a picture of her because it would have been too obvious. But I pulled this off the Vatican website this morning. Uh, they, they still have it up there because my wife is so good looking. And um, that and the fact that they keep every picture they take of the Pope up there. But um, um, so he shakes her hand first. She rattles off this Spanish that to me is just I'm 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 more proud over that than I am giving him the book. But with that, he kind of looks over at me and smiles and reaches out. So I get to give him the book, shake his hand, and yes, he took a copy of the book, and I found it later in the trash can outside. But I had I felt like I had accomplished something. I gave a copy of the book to the Pope. Now Oh, that's a. So anyway, we did. We did in in the Vatican. There's another big thing on the wall, and I've put the picture up here. It says "Sumi Pontificis in Hoc Basilica Sepulti." That means all the popes or pontiffs in hoc means in means in. See, you knew Latin and didn't know it. Hoc means this. Basilica is a church in this basilica. Um, Sepulti uh, is, means uh, they are buried. This is a list of popes that are buried in or near the basilica. And it starts with St. Peter. You might be able to see that. It's kind of small print. St. Petrus, um, uh, they made U's to look like V's in Latin. Because when they did their letters, originally they were chiseling. It's a lot easier to chisel a V than it is a U. Um, so St. Petrus is the first pope. And then they go to Linus and Cletus. And they go all the way down. J- pope John Paul II is the last name that's listed there. But you've got this great succession of popes on the wall. Now, it raises a really good question for us in this class that I'd like to address. And that is, what is the pope? Father. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's play languages for a moment. If, um, I should have put this in the lesson. And I'm going to try to get through this. If I can't get through all of this, we may do a little more next week. Um, but we've got to save the last three weeks we've got of this. I've got two to three weeks in a row in July before we get into our Greek, where we're going to talk about uh, the rise of Muhammad in Islam. So be getting ready for that. Um, but, uh, uh, it's worth taking some moment to see this. So Europe, okay, I'm not 
really going to get this just right. This is Italy. This is Greece. Oh, you can't see it? Hold on. Thank you. There. This is Italy. That's Rome. This is Greece. It's kind of a weird little thing. Then you come around and you've got uh, Turkey. Whoops, I left out Turkey. Turkey kind of butts out a little bit. You got Egypt, you got Africa, you got Spain and all. And this is Europe, okay? So this is Europe. And yes, we've just made Spain a whole lot bigger and added France, taken out the English Channel. Um, <clears throat> okay, Art, he is not. India is over here. Now, we can talk about Greek. We can talk about Latin, a Roman tongue. We can talk about the Germanic tongues from Germany. Spain and French, Spanish and French, those are just called Romance languages today because they come from the Roman language. So they are Romance languages from Rome and Latin. And, and we've got the Celtic tongues up here. All of these tongues are called, languages are called Indo-European. And that's because they all have a common heritage, whether it's from India all the way up through Europe. This is a common language of tongues that branched off into seven different divisions. And then from those seven different divisions, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah, seven different divisions have come the languages and we can do the family tree. But it means a lot of our words sound a lot alike. So, for example, this idea of if, if you were to say the Lord's Prayer in Greek, you would start out with the word pater, which is our father or its father. Pater, hemon. But the first word in the Lord's Prayer in Greek is pater, father. Now, a pa, 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 do that with your mouth. Pa, 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 pa. Do fa, 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 fa. Pa, 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 Those are both very close to the same sounds. And that's true in any language. And and even in Hebrew, the letter P and the letter F are the same. It's a pe-fe, depending upon whether you've got a dot in it. Papa, papa. So, pater is roughly the same as fater or father. Pater and father are the same root in an Indo-European sense. And it's the pa or the fa sound that is at the root of father or dad. And so little Greek boys and girls would call their father papas. P-A-P-P-A-S. Papas. We still say papa today. It's a natural sound, but in the Greek, papas. If you eat at papasitas, the eaters is to let you know that the Greek family papas is making Mexican food. <laughs> if you eat at papados, it's to let you know, the dough, to let you know the Greek family papas is cooked in Cajun that day. 
Papas is a Greek word. It means father, daddy. In, in Latin, same thing. Papa. Hope comes from that word. It's just an anglicized version of father. And the bishops in the early church were often called the spiritual fathers of the congregation. The, the first use of the word pope that we have in writing still today was used for the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt in the 200s. Around 230, 240. He's called the Pope. The Papa. Of, of the church there. Because he's their spiritual father. So now the Pope himself, that title, if we go back to the PowerPoint, that title for the Roman Catholic head of the church, Pope, comes about, the first documented we, use we have of it is late in the third century, the late 200s. But it doesn't really become prominent until the 400s or so. And, and, and there are other titles as a result that the Pope also carries. The Pope is called the Bishop of Rome. He is the bishop, the overseer of the church at Rome. Now, I have teased our pastor, David Fleming, behind his back without him knowing. And if I'm not here next week, it's because he, is, he frequently will come into this class and uh, sit in the back and, and, and listen. Um, his secretary is here. Oh. I have teased... Pastor David behind his back, and I would do it to his face. I just haven't had a chance yet. I've started calling him um, Pope David the first simply because it's fun and because you think about our campus right now. We are in six, seven, eight different locations. We've got a North Campus. We've got a Conroe Campus. We've got all these different campuses that are either in the drawing boards or in actuality. And all of them are, in a sense, under Pastor David, even though the churches have, you know, Pastor Stephen is, is really taking and, and, and running in the mainstay behind the North Campus. But it's all part of one church, multi-sites. Within that framework is the beginning, in some ways, of what we now have as the Roman Catholic Church, albeit thousands of years later. But there is a bishop of the Roman Church, and that title, Bishop of the Roman Church, has been around since the very beginning of the church in Rome. So he's the bishop or the overseer, or the um, um, pastor. We use that word in our denominational tradition for pastor. He's the pastor of the church at Rome. He's the vicar of Jesus Christ, another former title. He's the successor of the chief of the apostles. 
That's a third title that the Pope has. By that is meant, the chief of the apostles is Peter, the Catholic Church teaches. And so Peter designated a successor, and after that, the church picked a successor, a successor, a successor. And there is an unbroken chain of successors that we call the popes. He's also called the supreme pontiff of the universal church. That means he's the supreme leader, if you will, of the church at large, universal in the sense that the word Catholic means universal. He's patriarch of the West. There is a patriarch of the East, but he's not in the Roman Catholic tradition. He's in the Eastern Orthodox Church. They severed in the 1000 era. He is the primate, the top church official of Italy. Now you might be saying, duh, if he's all those other things, of course he's the primate of Italy. But that's a title he's got because of the way historically the role of the Pope has developed. He's the archbishop and the metropolitan of the Roman province, again a historical matter, and he is the sovereign of the state of Vatican City, because Vatican City is an independent, um, sovereign, we won't use the word country, but in essence country, political entity, for lack of a better way of saying it. Now, out of all of those, the one that means the most in terms of how he gets his authority is number three, successor of the chief of the apostles. So let's look at that together and let's examine it under the microscope of Scripture. There are a number of things involved in it. Number one is, is there such a thing as a chief of the apostles? Was Peter indeed the chief of the apostles? And if so, was it a formal title? Then second... How is this succession thing really understood? From a Protestant perspective, most see the uniqueness of the apostles as one that died out with the apostles. There are some modern churches that will still use the label apostle and and not without some scriptural sense but meaning in general that Greek sense of apostolos, someone who was sent out, someone sent out on the authority to preach God's word. There is a unique sense in Scripture, though, of the selected apostles who were that church-building generation. And the question becomes whether or not from a Protestant perspective that role within the church died out with the apostles or whether that role in the church continued through apostolic succession. So we need to look at that. Let's start with Scripture. The first passage, one that you'll be familiar with, most likely, is Matthew 16, 13 through 19. So if we go to the Elmo, let's see if I can make that a little bit bigger.
Okay. Now, this is Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. <clears throat> Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples. The word there used is disciples. Apostles is not yet used here. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man is one of Jesus's labels he uses for himself a lot. It harkens back to the prophecies in Daniel and uh, his role in fulfilling those prophecies. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been beheaded at this time. Some say you're Elijah, the Old Testament prophet who was taken up from earth in a fiery chariot and maybe returned. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Christ is Greek for anointed. Hebrew for anointed is Messiah, Mashiach. And we get Messiah from it. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar is Aramaic. It means son of. So he calls him Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. That was Simon's common name. Peter in the Greek is Petros. It means rock. And Jesus is making a pun here. You are rocky. Your name is Rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Now, there is an understanding from, and and when I say a Catholic understanding, I'm talking about the general church position. Uh, When I say the Protestant understanding, I'm talking about the general church position. I am generalizing because you can find someone who disagrees with anything in any church, be it Catholic Protestant or whatever, non-denominational. So with with that understanding that I'm in that lawyer fine print of, well, I know a Catholic who doesn't believe that. Um, this is general, but it's pretty general. Most Catholics will tell you, and most position is, is that Peter is the rock upon which the church will be built. And that Peter has the keys. 
And that's why most pictures of Peter are pictures of him holding keys. The papal seal in the Vatican are two keys. If you ever want to see a medieval painting and figure out if they're painting Peter, look for keys. That's the key to knowing it's Peter. So, now, here's the Protestant response. The Protestant response is, Peter is in Greek, Petros, or as we learn our Greek alphabet, P-E-T-R-O-S, Petros. Rock is the Greek word Petra, P-E-T-R-A, instead of Petros. And, and it's, it's a different type of a rock. And so some Protestants will say that Peter is one rock, but the bedrock of which Jesus is going to build the church isn't Peter. It is the proclamation of faith. You are the Son of God. And upon this rock, upon this truth, that I am the Son of God, I will build my church. And then Jesus, so upon which the church is built, is a reference to the rock of faith. And that's a Protestant understanding. Now, that may be why Matthew uses a different word for Peter, a different form for Peter there. But it might also be that one is just masculine and the other is feminine. And so he's, he can't really call Peter a girl. So, I mean, you can't just automatically go there and say, oh, there's a different Greek word. Well, it's it's not quite that easy. But I will say this. He says, whatever you loose shall be loosed. Whatever you bind shall be bound. In Matthew 18, two chapters later, Jesus says the same thing to all of his apostles. It doesn't just apply to Peter. And so the Protestants will point that out. Another passage of Scripture that's used here and and, in the Catholic understanding of why Peter had a special role among the other apostles is John 21, 15 through 17. Now, this is written after Jesus has already died. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. He's already appeared. And this is one of his last appearances to his disciples. Uh, But it's his first appearance, really, to, to Peter in a good talking sense. John 21, 15 through 17. Whoops. They've just finished eating fish by the Sea of Galilee. And um, there we go. Does that fit on there for y'all? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, by the way, Jonah is John. Jonah's just the Hebrew, so Simon bar Jonah is the same as Simon, son of John, when we put it into English here. Simon bar Jonah, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's talking about his other apostles. Jesus said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus says a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon says, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he asked it three times, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So from a Catholic perspective, this indicates that Peter took a role and responsibility as chief of the apostles. And the sheep there is, in the Catholic understanding generally, to mean the other apostles. From a Protestant perspective, this is seen as Jesus often referenced his followers as sheep. And when he referenced them as sheep, it wasn't simply the twelve. Peter wasn't, Peter's mission on life was not simply to the other eleven. Peter's mission was to the whole church, all of the followers of Jesus. Peter did have the keys that opened the kingdom of heaven in the sense that Peter preached the very first sermon that drew people into the church. And that was on Pentecost when thousands of people were baptized. And so Peter had that role of opening the door, but not simply feeding the sheep that were the apostles. He was responsible for feeding sheep, period as were the other apostles. That's what they were called to do from the Protestant perspective. Another passage. Let's see. I have Luke 22, 31, if we have time. Uh, We're running out of time. Um, Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make it through these passages, and then next week we'll concentrate even more on the history. But Luke 22, 31 This is Jesus talking about Peter and his betrayal. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So the Catholic tradition sees this as, again, setting up Peter as the chief of the apostles. Uh, From the Protestant perspective, this is just Jesus saying what he's saying. Peter, you're going to fail me. And once you fail me, your temptation is going to be to think your life is a wreck. By the way, I cannot keep going without taking a moment to say, Satan uses that line with every one of us when we fail the Lord. Well, you failed him now. You're useless. Your life's a wreck. And the same admonition that Jesus gave Peter can be for each of us. When you've turned again, when you have found that forgiveness from the Lord, get back to work. Strengthen your brothers. Be who you need to be in God's plan. And and, and it is a very sensible passage to me as a Protestant. Um, Galatians 2, 11 through 13. This is a passage that as a Protestant sticks out to me and is one that, that uh, gives me the view I have. 
Paul is writing to the Galatian church. Look what happens. Paul is telling the Galatian church to be serious about what Paul's telling them, teaching them. And he says, when Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, not in an eternal sense, but he's wrong. That's what he's saying colloquially, because he was wrong. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself because he was afraid of the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray. And you see a passage like this, and to me as a Protestant, it makes it a little harder for me to understand that Peter had this role as chief of the apostles when clearly Paul had no trouble confronting Peter and saying, you're wrong. And 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 in that sense, I, I mean... I think Paul would say the gospel trumps um, anybody and everybody. But let's keep going. And, and maybe I can do this lightly and we don't have to do it next week. But the historical successors to Peter in Rome then take on a different role. Yeah, we're going to have to do this next week. Let me give you, here's what is to come. I'm just going to bam, bam, bam. Because some of you won't be here next week. But don't use this as an excuse because next week I'll get into more. Okay? First of all, we don't, Protestants don't see Catholicism the same way the Catholics do. The Catholics view the church differently. And so the Pope is deemed to have two types of primacy. He's deemed to have magisterial primacy, which means that he's the ultimate decider to use a uh, President Bush term, he's the ultimate decider of doctrine and teaching. That's his responsibility. He's also deemed to have jurisdictional primacy because the Catholic Church deems the church not simply what we Protestants say. Protestants say the church is an invisible structure of all of the redeemed and saved of the Lord. Catholicism generally teaches that the church has a specific governing structure. And there are roles. And some of this comes out of the church being the official religion of the Roman Empire. Once Constantine makes it so. But the church is still seen to be, in essence, a government of its own. And so the Pope has jurisdictional primacy in that he leads that government. Now, this has developed interestingly, and we'll talk about this more next week. But when Rome is falling and Attila the Hun comes down and is getting ready to sack Rome... In 450 whenever, it's Pope Leo I who goes outside of Rome to negotiate with Attila the Hun and convinces him to turn around and go back home or at least leave Rome alone. Offers him treasures and booty and and off Attila goes. 
And so the Pope takes on, the Roman Empire itself has long left Rome. It's not being ruled out of Rome. You've got the Eastern Empire being ruled from Constantinople. We'll get into that more next week, but it's really interesting. And then Pope Leo takes the inheritance laws that exist and says, I am Pope because I inherited this from the previous Pope, the powers. But just as when I write my will, I can't in my will pass on my personality. I can't pass on my religious convictions. I can only pass on my properties. So the popes pass on that title and property and role and have since Peter, even though they can't pass on the personality. So some popes wind up being pretty bad dudes doing pretty bad stuff because they're not properly discharging what they have inherited in their role. And so we'll talk about that some next week. Let's do our fruit for home, and you guys have been very nice to listen to me. Ephesians 5, 25 through 26. I've put a section of it up here for you. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her to present her to himself as a radiant church, holy and blameless. This is very profound to me. The reason the church is special The reason you're special and I'm special as part of the church is not because of the Pope. It's not because of Pastor David. It's not because of Pastor David's secretary. Maybe. It's not because of Pastor Stephen. Certainly not because of your life group teacher. The reason we are special in the church is because Jesus Christ died for each one of us individually. He has not just died for you, but he said, I want to make you the most incredible thing you can be. I want to make you perfectly spotless and clean, and I want to transform your life into the greatest source of joy and happiness and peace and blessing that it could ever be. And part of that means you will fellowship with each other. Because it is in fellowship, just as it is in family, where we will have effects upon each other. We look out for each other. We take care of each other. We nurture each other. We encourage. We exhort. And so we all have a role to play because God is using the church to change His people. And my point for home is, is Jesus that makes the church special. This isn't a glee club of which we're a member. Point for home too. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. From Second Samuel, it's replete throughout the Psalms. And it doesn't change with that passage where Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I'll tell you where the church is built. On Christ, the solid rock. That's where the church is built. And 
You can build a house on shifting sand and it doesn't stand. You need to build on a firm foundation. It needs to be built on Jesus. And if I talk to anybody, Catholic, Protestant, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, Church of Christ, my issue is not who's your preacher. My issue is who's your master. Do you know Jesus? Next issue. Colossians 2, 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. You've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. And the nice thing is, we'll get to Hebrews at some point in this class, one of my favorite books. But the writer of Hebrews makes so clear we no longer approach Jesus through any human, or approach God through any human around us. We approach God through Jesus Christ and his death. And we can pray to him directly. And we have direct access to him. And he hears our prayers. And he changes our lives. So I'm going to measure everything against knowing Jesus because that's what counts. Can I pray over you? Lord, we do thank you for who you are. And Father, we thank you for all the seekers around this world. And it is our prayer that we will affirm you as God. Jesus Christ as a crucified, resurrected, coming again Lord. To whom we owe all of our lives. May we affirm that to everyone, Father as you continue to transform us into the image of your son. I thank you for my church family here, and I ask you to give a special blessing to each person that they will tune their hearts to hear your song. In Jesus we pray, amen.